Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Morning, everyone. Happy new title credits day. And welcome to the news agenda with me, Fleet Street Fox. And today I'm joined by the Mirror's political editor, John Stevens. Good morning, John. Hi, morning, Susie. What do you think of our sexy new titles? I was just thinking, I thought, is that new? I've not seen you with your feet on the desk before. But yeah, <laughs> You're never in the office. If you've been in the office when I was in there, John, you'd see me on my feet on the desk every damn time. Um, now, this is the People's Pay-Per-View, so get into the comments, ask us your questions. Those of you listening later on podcast are just going to have to imagine how whizzy and on-brand our new titles look and comfort yourselves with the knowledge that although this is technically a relaunch, it's exactly the same as we've been doing all along. If, you don't, if it ain't broke, just put a ribbon on it. Now, so what have we got? Well, the mirror has splashed on the awful news today that a body has been found in the River Wire three weeks after local mum, Nicola Bully, went missing nearby while walking her dog. And the process of identifying the body is now underway, and we don't yet know if it is Nicola or some other poor soul. But, John, her partner, Paul Ansell, has said that he has no words about this, and it, it's just agony. It's the news that they've dreaded for three weeks, this, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely awful. And you just think this poor family, the last few weeks must have been complete hell for them, all this uncertainty, what's happened. And then yesterday, the discovery of this body, obviously, the body's not yet been formally identified, but it's not looking particularly great. And I think that people now are starting to ask questions about what the police have done in this case, what they've done on the search, obviously, it looks like this body was found about a mile away from where Nicola Bully was last seen. So there's questions about those diving searches that they'd done in the river. Had they looked properly? Is it possible that the body had gone further downstream and then come back up on the tide? And obviously it will take a lot of time for those answers to come up. There's also questions about how the police have communicated in this case. We know that on one level it's been quite different. We've never had a case where we've had so many TikTok detectives, people just going out with their mobile phone. We know that a lot of them have just been putting wild theories out on TikToks and they've been digging up part of the woodland around where Nicola Bully was last seen. So they've been particularly disruptive for the police. But you've got to ask questions about how the police have handled this case. When you had things like last week, when there was that muddle where they gave this press conference and said that they wanted to kind of end speculation and say that, that she had specific vulnerabilities, which obviously didn't end speculation. It just created a whole new level of speculation about what these specific vulnerabilities were. And then you had the police going out there further and saying that she'd struggled with alcohol in the past, that she'd been struggling with the menopause. And then big questions about was that appropriate? Was that helpful in the search for Nicola Bully? Or was it just a new distraction and kind of whipped up this frenzy of all these people posting wild frenzies, uh, wild theories online, even more than it was in the first place? Well, exactly. Does it, did it help find her? 
that's the question. If you say that someone's got uh, alcohol problems or is struggling with the menopause, and there are many people who struggle with the menopause who don't end up in a river, but does that help anybody track her down? And if not, then why are you talking about it? Because that, you know, whether, you, whether you're looking for a body or looking for a witness or, or looking for Nicola alive somewhere, then you, why would you say it? It doesn't help in whatever it is you're doing. Uh, now get into the comments, everybody. Be within reason, please. Um, ask us your questions. What do you think about how the police investigation has gone? As well as the issue of IDing this body that they found, pathologists are going to be trying to establish the cause of death. And unfortunately, as John mentioned there, there are a lot of internet ghouls already making things more difficult. For example, by breaching police barriers around the site where the body's been found, trying to get to the scene. It would appear just for clicks rather than for any decent, good, well-founded reason. And the net result is that if there is anything found by forensic specialists, any kind of evidence that could be there, that forensic specialists could find, whether it's footprints, whether it's signs that Nikki tried to get out of the river, things that would help in a future inquest, or even if there was a, a murder involved, the evidence will have been destroyed by these trespassers. Now, one of the questions people are already asking is how it's possible to miss this body for three weeks when the river's been combed by police, uh, by a freelance underwater sonar crew we saw there in the clip, uh, when the banks have been searched and gullies like the one this body was found in should also have been investigated. It, apparently this body was spotted by dog walkers. Now, if a dog walker had spotted it, you'd have thought some policemen could, who, who are looking for a body would have spotted it. <clears throat> now, John, regardless of whether this is Nicola or not, like you say, something's gone very, very wrong. This whole thing's been conducted, isn't it? Oh, definitely. And, you know, it is hard for a local police force when you suddenly have all of this scrutiny. We haven't had so many of these cases in recent years where there has been a high profile missing person case. We know that if you're a local police force and you suddenly have all these hundreds of journalists descend on you, you're suddenly at the centre of the national news agenda and people are picking over every little bit of the operation. We know that that's quite difficult, but that is just what happens with big police investigations. That is something that is naturally going to happen. And in a case like this, where, you know, it was, it just seems such a mystery. No one really had a proper idea of what had happened. You can see why there was a lot of interest. She was a young mum. She was just doing something quite ordinary that a lot of people do on, you know, any other day of the week, just going out, dropping her kids off at school and then taking the dog walk, a dog out for a walk. So you can see why a lot of people identified with her, kind of thought, gosh, that could easily have been me. You know, there are similarities between me and my life. So you can see why there was this massive public interest. And I'm not sure the police always use that to their advantage. You know, there's ways you can use that to kind of get the message out there that you want people to get hand over their dash cam footage from their cars. You want people to kind of rack their brains, but did they see anything mm. unusual in the area? But I think at some times the police just struggle to really work out what they wanted to communicate to the public and when. And then they left this vacuum where you've got people just coming up with this mad stuff on TikTok. And even on my TikTok feed this morning, you know, I came across this video, this guy had filmed where he was trying to get past the police cordon last night as they were looking at what they'd found. And you just think, gosh, this is just truly disgusting, really. And there's been people on the radio talking about how there were people with their phones trying to get pictures of the body being taken away from the river. And you just think, oh, some people have got 
I, mean, I think there's a question here, you know, obviously there's questions about police and the search, but there's also questions about people posting stuff on TikTok and then just chasing hits and people are so desperate to kind of just get loads of likes and kind of loads of attention that they've kind of just put aside all kind of morals and decency and are just kind of just going absolutely mad, really. I know, it's just <laughs> Holly Bone, the reporter who's been covering it for us uh, up in the northwest, was on here last week, said that, <clears throat> excuse me, said that it was partly to do, mostly she thought to do with sort of the age of social media and the fact that, that sort of dissociates people rather than bringing people closer to get closer together in instances like this it dissociates them from what's happening and they just go to arm's length and they, they think that it's almost not like a the, the real human side of it just seems to get lost now zoe says has the identity been confirmed no it hasn't zoe that's a process that's underway right now there'll be a number of different ways that they're going to try to confirm identity of the body that they've found it could be nikki it could be someone else <clears throat> we don't know when they uh, are trying to find that identity, they'll be taking DNA, they'll be using dental records, they'll be using, you know, uh, whatever clothes, if any of the body was found in, that sort of thing. And <clears throat> they'll also be trying to find uh, the cause of death. And until everyone has kind of got that and knows what some of those answers are, all the speculation really, I'm going to have to have a drink of tea to you. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me, I'm just getting over a lurgy. My throat's not really up to this. <coughs> um, until that speculation is over, we don't really know what the answer to those questions are. <clears throat> so our hearts go out to Nicola's family. And let's just hope that they can get these ID'd. And as Paul says, their lessons need to be learned all around after this tragic case. <clears throat> Particularly, I think, um, by some of the people on TikTok, it would appear. Now, moving on to other issues. Over the weekend, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has been having meetings with the DUP and EU leaders in an attempt to break the Brexit deadlock on Northern Ireland, which seems to have been going on for about seven years now and <clears throat> was inevitable since the day of the referendum, and which was made magnificently worse in the past few years by constant posturing and willy-waving by one Boris Johnson, formerly of this parish. Now, as we apparently edge closer to some kind of a deal that might make the whole thing livable and get the DUP back into the Stormont Assembly and restart power sharing in Northern Ireland, which, of course, was the solution to the troubles that had gone on for so many years. Uh, Boris Johnson's doing what, John? Well, Boris Johnson is doing what he always likes to do, which is putting himself front and centre, getting all of the attention. And the things with these Brexit negotiations, which... Boris Johnson knows from having gone through them himself, is that when you're coming to the crunch point, people suddenly go silent in public. There's a lot of kind of backroom negotiations going on. And we know that's what Rishi Sunak's been doing. He met the different parties in Northern Ireland on Friday. Then on Saturday, he was at the Munich Security Conference, which he used as an opportunity to hold loads of one-on-one -on -one meetings with people like Ursula von der Leyen, who's one of the chiefs of the EU, other people like Olaf Scholz, who's the Chancellor of Germany, whole list of different European leaders he was speaking to. But in public, Number 10 are saying very little about what's going on. They're not talking about the detail of this negotiation. They just think it's better to get on with it in the background and kind of just leave the public stuff to everyone else. And so Boris Johnson clearly saw an opportunity here and thought, well, everyone wants to write a story on Brexit, so I'll provide some content. And so on Saturday night, put out this source quote suggesting that 
Rishi Sunak was at risk of making a great mistake on Brexit. And it just stirs up all these problems in the Tory party again, all the kind of psychodrama and the Tory Brexit rows all back again. And the beneficiary of this, of course, is Boris Johnson, who gets talked about on this and other things in different newspapers. And so I think Boris Johnson will be very happy that he's managed to kind of get his big spoon out and do some stirring whilst getting some attention for himself, while not particularly seeming to help Rishi Sunak get on with these negotiations. His big spoon and willy waving in the same kind of fashion. <laughs> what a horrible thought. Um, <clears throat> right, get into the comments, everybody. Ask us your questions. Do you think Boris Johnson is being helpful here? Do you think this is something important and that as the father of Brexit, he ought to be having some kind of a say at the table? Or do you think he's the one who's caused half of these problems? Mike says Johnson would rather wreck the Tory party than have someone else lead it. There does appear to be a little bit of sour grapes involved in this, Mike. I think you're right. Um, now, Boris Johnson has been told to butt out then by George Osborne and Peter Mandelson, both of them, it must be said, Remainers, uh, uh, but also more experienced statesmen than Boris Johnson was. The Boris fo faction, the, the Brexit hard nuts, if you like, within the Tory party, they're still a sizable chunk of the parliamentary party, aren't they, John? Can Rishi really afford to ignore them if Boris decides to, to get them to rise up against all this? Yeah, well, we know there's loads of different groups of Tory MPs. I mean, that's partly because some of them see themselves as Boris people, some of them see themselves as Liz Trust people, that's an ever-decreasing number of people, and some of them see themselves as um, Rishi people. And you've got all these different camps, and it doesn't take that much to get a row going between Tory MPs. I mean, I think whatever this deal that gets done with the EU, and we think it could possibly come as early as tomorrow, I think that you're obviously going to end up with some Tory MPs who are unhappy, who kind of want to mouth off and say that they're unhappy about things. I mean, the key thing really, though, is whether the government ends up having to hold a vote in the House of Commons on whatever deal this comes back. It's possibility that they might be able to get this deal through without holding a vote in the Commons. If they do hold the vote in the Commons, you might see a load of Tory MPs rebel. But the one thing the Labour Party has said that they will support uh, this deal. And they've said that, Rishi Sunak, if you need the votes to get this through because you can't control your backbenches, we're more than happy to give you the votes because we think it's important for stability in Northern Ireland just to put this stuff to bed. And, you know, I think Boris Johnson, to some extent, does have a bit of a nerve that we remember back in 2019, the election when he unveiled this Brexit deal, he obviously went round the country. I mean, I went to loads of events with him, with him all about this oven-ready Brexit deal. I went to a bakery somewhere, we had a pie and it had Brexit on the top of the pie. And it was all to show that he had this oven-ready Brexit deal, ready to end the rows on Brexit once and for all so the country could move forward. And here we are three, almost four years later, still talking about Brexit, still going around in circles, still talking about all these complications about trading arrangements in Northern Ireland. And I think that for him to kind of wade in, throw this grenade into the Brexit row, there are a lot of people on his own side who think maybe if we got this right the first time, we wouldn't be still talking about this three years later. Exactly. And there are lots of political reasons why he wanted to say he got Brexit done. But of course, it's, it's all about a lot more than a stunt, isn't it? So <clears throat> get into the comments, everybody. What do you think? Do you think Boris Johnson should butt out? 
Or do you think he's got some skin in this game and he's got a right to speak up? Now, very quickly, we'll try and sum up, if I can, exactly what the Brexit deal is, right? So Northern Ireland is our only land border with the EU and it's the border, the only border we're not allowed to control, which is the fundamental problem with Brexit and, <clears throat> and Northern Ireland. Now, unless you want to just leave Northern Ireland entirely, which Northern Ireland doesn't want to do, you have to have some kind of arrangement whereby you can still send goods to and from Northern Ireland, but you're somehow observing this economic border between them and the Republic, which we're not allowed to observe. And Rishi's deal is that um, when you send goods to Northern Ireland, some of them will be flagged red and some of them will be flagged green, right? And if they're on the green route, they're just going to Northern Ireland and back. There's no need to check them. But if they're on the red route, then they're going through to the EU and therefore they do need to have more customs checks. Now, the reason that the DUP pulled out the Stormont Assembly was because they felt that Northern Ireland was being treated differently to the rest of the United Kingdom. Uh, <clears throat> now, this, of course would mean, with the customs checks, you see, this, of course, would mean that Northern Ireland is still being treated differently because we don't have red and green lanes for sending goods to Scotland or Wales, right, or Kent, for example. Um, we, we do have to have something different for Northern Ireland. So this is a fudge, right? This is something where the DUP is not getting all it would want. The EU is not getting all it would want because there will plainly still be loads of cross-border smuggling and trade. But it's a way of fudging it a bit and saying, oh, look, guys, we've made it a bit easier. But you still can't fix Brexit because it's the one land border we have to control in order to have a separate economic entity. And it's the one border we're not allowed to control. So I think I've just pretty much covered that. I don't know if I've got it wrong. Someone will tell me, won't they? <clears throat> now, Nick says, in a time of crisis, I'd rather have Boris than what's in charge now. No matter what you say, he pulled through in times of need. He did. Um, I'm not sure we're in a time of need now <clears throat> and whether we really need Boris Johnson. That's the question. I think that's the, that's the need Boris Johnson's got rather than the need we currently have. Misha says the only things that got done with Brexit was all of us. There you go. There's one of each there. We've been pro and remain uh, today. So <clears throat> you can't say we're biased. Now, there's this argument, isn't there, that um, Boris Johnson really is part of all this and he's, he should have something to say about it. But as John has pointed out, he's not particularly helpful. And his track record on this isn't that of a, of a Brexit negotiating genius, is it, John, really? Um, where do you think we're going to end up at the end of this all? So I think that it's probably quite likely that we'll see some sort of deal shot with Brussels by Rishi Sunak at some point this week, maybe Wednesday, maybe Thursday. I think that if the government will want to get this done, now that people are starting to talk about it, it's been near the top of the news agenda all this weekend. And so I think now that you're starting to see Tory MPs having different discussions and rag about in public, they just want to get this over and done. So I think you quite likely see them push to get a deal done by the end of this week. And then I think they quickly want to make a call on do you need it to pass a vote in the commons and then if it does just get on with that do it before people have got the chance to fall out too much yeah try and get it um if this zombie has to come back again get it back in the box as soon as possible now mike says the dup were utterly conned by johnson there's footage of him guaranteeing no paper paperwork at the great britain northern ireland border there is indeed it's on the mirror website there's a video of him telling northern ireland business leaders there would be no extra checks at the border <clears throat> he did have a drink in his hand at the time now, moving on to other questions, um, uh, something else. Now, John's got a story in the paper today uh, about an upcoming junior doctor's strike. Now, <clears throat> John, as far as I understand, there are a couple of unions balloting 
One of them is closing at noon today. So how do you know and what does this mean? Yeah, so there's two different unions that cover junior doctors. You've got the HSCA, which is a much smaller union. They've never, ever taken strike action in their history. And they had a ballot in January. They voted overwhelmingly for strike action. And they've announced that on March the 15th, junior doctors who are members of this HSCA union will go out on strike. And then we've got a second union, the BMA, which is much bigger. They've got 45,000 junior doctors who are members. They've got this ballot on strike action. We're still ongoing. At midday today, that will close. It looks quite likely they will vote for strike action as well. And if they do, it's likely we'll find out some point this afternoon. It looks like they're going to hold 72-hour strike at some point in the next few weeks, which should obviously be a big escalation of this row. We know we've had the nurses who've been out on strike, the ambulance workers, some of them out on strike today. But yeah, this is going nowhere, this row. Uh, NHS workers really unhappy about pay and the government so far haven't been able to do anything to kind of bring the two sides together to sort this out and I think that a lot of patients will be very concerned about this and questioning why on earth the government isn't doing more to bring more people around the table and get on and find some sort of deal that can bring these strikes to a halt? Because when you speak to the health unions, when you speak to ambulance workers, you speak to nurses, they are determined on this. They think they're doing the right thing. They think it's really important that paying conditions are improved, particularly for recruitment and retention. We know that thousands of people have been leaving the NHS because they can do other jobs elsewhere, which are less emotionally draining, kind of better hours, better pay in some cases. And so they're saying if you want to get the NHS back up off its knees, then what you need to do is start paying its workers properly. Exactly. Uh, you would have thought so, wouldn't you? Now, get into the comments, everybody. We've got a few questions we've got time for on this before we move on to something else. Um, <clears throat> what do you think about the junior doctors going out on strike? Do you think that is a sign of how serious the problems are within the NHS, with nurses, paramedics, physiotherapists, ambulance drivers all out on strike as well? <clears throat> or do you think this is a step too far? Do you think this is a sign that um, something has gone badly wrong and they shouldn't be allowed to go out on strike? Uh, <clears throat> now, the issue here, I suppose, John, is that as far as, you know, the, the government seems to have an issue with the ideology of striking, with the idea that um, that they should have to pay any more in principle. They just don't want to do it and that they certainly shouldn't respond to, I suppose, what they would see as some kind of blackmail by NHS staff um, by going out on strike and that they, they, just, they have to just hold the line and it will all be OK. They need to stick to their principles. But there comes a point, doesn't there, where practicality has to overtake ideology you would have thought and the fact that people aren't going to be getting the care they need and um you know we've already got excess deaths in the nhs for this time of year not linked to covid we would have thought really that that is going to cause at some point a political impetus for the government to have to settle but i mean i've been saying this since day one of the nhs strikes where do you think we are on that inevitable track i suppose of, of starting off with the government saying no 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 we're not going to give in and the point where practicality hits and they have to somehow come to the table and do a deal of some sort where are we on that so I, think I think you've seen different stages in this kind of 
row over strikes. When you started at the very beginning and you had the rail workers, the Tory government seemed to almost be stoking this up. They really wanted to row. They thought this was a way of kind of building division with Labour. They thought that people might turn on Keir Starmer and say you're too supportive of the unions. And that didn't really work out. And then you had the kind of strike spreading to all the different sectors. You had people like Steve Barclay, the House Secretary, refusing to even talk to the unions about paying conditions. And then after the new year, they thought, well, that's not really working out. The public opinion wasn't turning in the direction of the government. It was going completely the other way. If you look at any of the polling, it shows that the public is very supportive of NHS workers going on strike. So then at the start of January, they did have a few meetings with the unions, but they haven't really got anywhere. And I think the next stage will be if you see any other parts of the UK where you do see a deal accepted by the unions, then I think that would ramp up pressure on the government in England. I think particularly in Scotland, where the Scottish government has been holding talks with the Royal College of Nursing about some sort of compromise deal. I think if they show that there is a way you can do some sort of deal, maybe around 9%, 10% increase in pay, and that's accepted by the unions, then I think a lot of the public in England will think, well, hang on a minute, is there no way we can come to a sensible compromise down here as well? Exactly. Um, I suppose, I mean, Misha says this government doesn't like strikes because they represent the power that workers have over their employers. Heaven forbid the peasants don't just do as they're told. It's worth pointing out some of the first strikes were in the wake of the peasants, uh, led to the peasants revolt in the wake of the Black Death, because the situation uh, with serfs changed significantly. They were no longer bound to uh, a landowner because they were massively in demand because of labour shortages. And therefore, they were able to revolt and ask for more money and all the rest of it. Uh, and that's a similar situation, I suppose, we found ourselves in now, but without the Peasants' Revolt and chopping off the head of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, Leslie says, do you think the government are getting us ready when we don't have an NHS so as to make us buy private medical insurance? Leslie, I don't know about you, but I don't think they're that bright. <clears throat> I don't think they're capable of thinking that far ahead. I think they're thinking for the next two years and then get as many people on the lifeboats as possible and they get the hell out of Dodge and leave the mess for Keir Starmer and Labour to clean up is what I think. What do you think, John? I mean, I think that... <laughs> Sigh. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think. I mean, I think, that, I think that is partly the case among some Tory MPs. I mean, there is obviously a lot of misery when you talk to Tory MPs, a lot of them are worried about losing their seats at the next election. But I still think we've got quite a way to go. It doesn't look like Rishi Sunak's going to be calling an election anytime soon. I think it's more likely to come some point at the end of next year, maybe around November time when it's cold and dark and people don't really want to go around the country on battle buses or knocking doors and leafleting people. And you're going to have to, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> the first part, not the second. And um, so, yeah, I think it's quite likely that we might still be quite a bit of a way from an election. But there's a chance they might be able to turn things, away, but, uh, turn things around. But I think there is this growing feeling among a lot of people that the country is just broken, things aren't working, and perhaps it is time to have some different people in charge to bring in some fresh ideas and how you work things out. That's it. I mean, I was, I was talking very quickly before we go into good news. I've, I've got a six-year-old <clears throat> and she watches the news with me because we have to watch the news in this household. It's religion at six o'clock in the evening. Hugh Edwards and the telly and the news and the, and the sandwich and that's it. Um, <clears throat> and she said, what's the difference between Tory and Labour and who should be in charge? And I said, well, 
they do things differently, but fundamentally they should probably just take turns. And that's pretty much what happens. You have five, 10, 15 years of one, and then five, 10 or 15 years of the other. And most people just think it's time to switch now to the other guys, rather than being everybody sort of being definitely one party or the other forever. Most people tend to just get, yeah, it's time for a change. They've been in too long and that's it really. And she seemed to grasp that, but I, I haven't got onto the uh, finer details of political ideology. I'll give that a few years. Right. <clears throat> Thank you, everyone, for taking part in those. Thank you, John, for your explanation. Um, we do have some good news we've managed to find for you in the world. And here it is. Now, when Alan Swinbank got a call out of the blue earlier this year, he was astonished to find out he has a long-lost brother that he never knew about. Now, John Swinbank's granddaughter had been doing some family history research and looked him up. These two never knew of each other's existence as a child um, because their dad, who's also called John, who's a uh, bus driver there on the right of the picture, he left one family and then started another one. And the first family were told that he was dead. Now, Alan was just six months old at the time. Uh, and in fact, John was a POW and he lived until 1980. So he never got to see his dad again. But the two brothers, John and Alan, have been reunited at the age of 87 and 85 and found out they've got a lot in common, which is very nice. John, do you think, is this proof that we can always overcome the problems uh, our parents supposedly give us, even if it does take a while in some cases? Well, I think this is proof that when you, I mean, the reason they've been reunited is because one of their granddaughters started digging and doing family tree stuff and then stumbled across this link. So I think it's proof that if you start doing family tree stuff and start digging, you never know what we might find. You might uncover something good or bad about your family, that there is possibly stuff, mysteries out there, things that have been yeah. long put to bed and people had hoped had been forgotten. And then suddenly you can dig them up years later by going rooting around in your genealogy and on your ancestry.co.uk and working out exactly how different parts of your family line up. Exactly. And if uh, if you're going to abandon one family and move on to the next one, someone's going to find out eventually. <laughs> <laughs> it never stays secret for very long. Now, um, thank you for taking me through all of that, John. Um, thank you, everybody, for taking part. Remember, if you're making any online comments about the search for Nicola Bully, we do not have confirmation yet. This is her. It could be some other poor soul. Um, and there are obviously some questions to answer for the police investigation. But until then, let's have a bit of thought and consideration for Nicola's family and her partner, Paul, and her children <clears throat> who have endured three very difficult weeks and are now going to endure probably two or three extremely difficult days while they're waiting for confirmation as to whether or not this is Nicola. Now, um, if you're listening to us in podcast, please leave us a review so other people can find us. And we'll see you again on Wednesday. <clears throat> Hopefully my throat will have uh, had another stage of uh, redevelopment since then and be a bit more rehabilitated. And um, we'll see you again on Wednesday for another edition of the News Agenda. Thanks, everybody. Tatty bye.